Before we get into this week's episode of the Don't Fret podcast, I just want to give a trigger warning at minute 16 till about minute 26. We're talking about sexual assault, specifically like child sexual assault. So if that's something you're not in a place to hear about, uh, just skip over that part. Thank you so much. What up, y'all? Welcome back to the Don't Fret Podcast. My name is Dee Fretter. I'm a poet, spoken word artist from just outside of Vancouver, BC, Canada. And one of my favorite things to do is sit down with a creative type or entrepreneurial spirit and talk to them about what they do, why they do it, how they do it, how they look at the world, what's their take on mental health, spirituality, you know, tell me their story and deep stuff like that. And this is a podcast where I have those conversations and then I share them with you. This week on the podcast is my friend Carly Bloom, fellow poet and author of Giggle Puss, which is out now in stores. So you could buy it. You know, if you like this podcast, you like Carly, you can be like, oh, that was pretty good. I'm gonna go buy that book. And you can do that in the show notes. And if you like this podcast, please rate it, review it, subscribe to it, download it, whatever you gotta do. I know every podcast says it, but it really helps with visibility. So thank you so much for doing that. And please enjoy this episode of the Don't Fret Podcast with Carly Bloom. to read a poem called Dead Malls. At night, I explore abandoned places, discover YouTube videos that tour urban ruins, dead malls, once full of melted cheese, bootcut jeans, teenage screams. I rake my hand through leftover air, Attempt to reach these glass houses of worship, buttressed with lost excess, the past that attempts access as witness. Eyes that slurp milky tile, fusty Merlot-colored carpet splashes, goldenrod swizzles that dance out from the screen, scattered on the ground like dropped fries. But why do I persist here? Why do I peer through plastic ficus, regal and aphid-free and enduring? I've grown accustomed to the company of slack space, smiling on the other side of roller shutters, their gritted teeth, a skittering zircona, homecoming. I am at home when I soak in the fragrant bubble bath and body and beyond of de-industrial sublime, take long showers under disintegrating columns, at least until I no longer hear the steady drone of the commercial floor scrubber and the last sounds of Santana and Rob Thomas trickling from overhead speakers. Where were you at when you wrote that? Uh, I was really in a place where I was kind of obsessed with a lot of 
post-capitalist ruins. And I just had kind of done a deep dive on YouTube. And there's this guy that does these tours of old abandoned malls uh, of America. And uh, I don't know, I just, it hit something inside of me. So just kind of how we're used to seeing these ancient ruins and we're more familiar with those types of things. And I think we're seeing more uh, post-capitalist ruins like gigantic super malls. And um, I have one of the ruins on the cover of my book, the uh, Mick Barge of Vancouver's Expo 86. So it's kind of where I was at. I didn't realize that that, that image was of something so close to home for, for you and for me. Um, that's a really cool, that's a really cool detail. Um, w- the book is called Giggle Puss. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about like why? Yeah. It's funny because even before I wrote the book, the title just popped into my head. Yeah, I was in a bookstore and I thought, I really want to see a book on the shelves right now called Giggle Puss. And there, I don't know, I just really liked the kind of monosyllable of it. It felt striking, but it also, it's really indicative of the content. And um, I basically deep dive into my girlhood. And I feel like giggle puss is a term that, you know, parents throw around a lot. You know, you're sitting in the back seat with your brother, your friends, and like, stop being such a giggle puss and and it's sort of uh, a symbol for taking something that is really benign and kind of turning it on its head and a lot of the things I write about in this book felt really normalized and benign a lot of really traumatic things and because I've ruminated on them and had therapy and written about them I've looked at them through a completely different lens. So I felt like Giggle Puss really uh, embodied all that. That's really, that's interesting because not to, that's like, you know, comparison is like the thief of all joy or whatever. So not to compare us or nothing like that. But I had a similar experience where I was like, I think I I thought of the title of the book, my book, not your book, my book, um, before I was like, really set on I'm gonna write a book and originally my book had a different title because I wasn't sure if the title that it has was like was gonna work you know because um yeah and then a lot of my book like like you've read mine I think or you've read some of it and um I haven't gotten my copy of your book just yet um I pre-ordered it but you know at the time of recording, it's not out yet, but by the time this episode is out, it will be available. So definitely go copy you a copy, copy you a copy. Say that ten times fast. Um, but yeah, like a lot of my book is me looking at like looking back on my childhood and kind of examining it through the lens of like the per- like looking back on your life through the lens of the person who lived that life is an interesting can be cathartic, can be kind of painful experience and you know as poets we both created something pretty cool out of it yeah and I picked up on that when I read your book 
I really, it hit something inside me too. Cause I was like, wow, I, I get the feeling that he's, he's doing what I set out to do in my book and that duality of joy and misery. And it's a great title. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, did you grow up in Vancouver or in the Vancouver area originally? Yeah, I was born in North Vancouver and I spent the first 10 years of my life in North Vancouver. And um, my grandmother lived in English Bay and I was out there quite a bit. And um, my dad was a, a Vancouver cop, which has uh, its its own things to unpack, right? Yeah. And so I feel like Vancouver was very much embedded in my upbringing. And then after... 10 years, my family moved out to Langley, Walnut Grove. Right. And that was sort of the other half of my childhood. So there were these sort of two very different worlds. Yeah. And it's weird because they're pretty close together geographically, but they could not be more different, you know, culturally. Yeah. And it had an impact. Yeah. On a bit of a culture shock, I imagine, for, you know, a 10, 11, 12 year old. Yeah, it felt, like it. it felt like it at the time. It felt like going from a big city, even though in the early 90s, Vancouver was completely different than it is today. Uh, a whole different beast, but it was still quite different. Um, Walnut Grove, this sort of freeway town that uh, was relatively new. So when you were experiencing this culture shock, was that when writing came into play? Like, did you start processing what was going on inside of you or around you through art at that point in your life, or did that come later? Yeah, that's actually a really interesting question because it was around that time that I started writing. And I think as a lot of writers growing up amidst chaos, you know, you use it to kind of get control in some kind of way. And especially if you're socialized to be very quiet and folded down and neat and tidy because the adults around you are very chaotic. Hmm. And that was my case. <laughs> okay, that's, that's a really interesting take or an interesting perspective on creativity. I don't think I've ever... I've ever heard that creativity as a means of gaining control. Man, if any of my students are listening, that's going to be real confusing because we always talk about letting go of control and mm. getting into the flow and you can't flow and control at the same time. So that's really interesting like to make sense of the world and to establish order. You turn to creativity. I guess that, that does make sense. I've just never thought of it that way before it's like almost yeah. more of a craftsman approach to like a flowy feely tie-dye guy kind of way of doing that that's that's me right so that's, yeah that's cool. I love it there's so many ways to based on how you were raised or your own uh experience in life uh how you use writing yeah um writing specifically I didn't start writing until I was like probably 18, maybe, mm -hmm. 18, 17 or 18. And it was more of like an act of rebellion 
than anything else. Um, I like that. saying it, saying all the shit that no one, like none of the adults would let me say. You yes. Know? Like, yeah. um, in in so my really. in my book, not that black. That I've been waiting my whole life to say that poem. You know, mm-hmm. and like my friend, and how did that feel? When I wrote it, it felt like I was just more like, yeah, I said it. Now I'm going to yeah. post it on Instagram. And then when it, yeah. when it, like, it did pretty well for a guy with, like, 200 followers at the time, um, I was like, hell yeah. People heard that shit. And then my high school bullies saw it, and they were like, hey, man, I'm really sorry. And I'm like, go fuck yourself. And that felt even better. Um, hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And that in itself is a high because you're just like, I've, I've, I don't know, I'm wrapping this writing around these things that felt so globular and out of control. And I'm just like, it's like a lasso in some kind of way. Some kind of way. So did you consistently stay writing from when you started at 10, 11, 12 to, to now? Uh, I, I don't know how old you are, but currently. I'm 37 and no, Wait, really? actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay, cool. Awesome. Good for you. <laughs> I'm a mature woman. Um, yeah, no, I, I didn't do it consistently. I just started writing in a journal. Like my first poem was about my dog and I was like oh this is nice I wrote a poem about a dog and then I wrote a little bit like darker of a poem about Remembrance Day and the Holocaust when I was in grade five and my teacher asked me to read it in front of the school at the assembly and I was like wow like other people find value sort of in these scribbles or these you know little tangents and that felt really good but it just really never stuck in a consistent way. And I don't, I'm not really too sure why, maybe it was the chaos of, you know, growing up in certain situations, but I sort of revisited it in my twenties and I touch on sort of that time in the book. Um, I didn't always make a lot of good decisions in my early twenties as many people don't do in their twenties. Um, and it was a really rocky time for me, a yeah. lonely time, probably the loneliest time of my life. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, and then you ended up going to the, to a writing pro, like a post-secondary mm-hmm. writing program. Was that like in your late twenties, early thirties then, or? Yeah, it was mid twenties. When I was in my mid twenties, I went to Kwantlen and I studied actually marketing and business and I was enjoying it, but I needed to take a couple electives and I took creative writing and then I just fell head over heels in love with it. And then sort of the business side of me started to slowly die. And I was like, I just really feel like this is the true me Mm. that I've been kind of socking away for so long. And um, then I just kind of got a job um, in advertising and sales And then I became a mother and it was really kind of when I became a mother that these sort of cracks formed in me. Um, You know, 
motherhood has talked a lot about like, oh, you know, it just made me grow and it made me blossom. And sure, there's some things about that that are true, but there was a lot of past trauma I had not dealt with. And having a daughter really just um, shone a light on all that past trauma. And I, I knew that I had to get back to writing yeah. or else <laughs> dot 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 yeah so um if you don't mind me asking. Yeah, so, sorry I was gonna say right after that I went to the writer's studio right yeah yeah my my adoptive mother has done that as well um probably not at the same time but yeah she's done that as well and and uh our mutual friend Hope who uh is probably gonna listen to this episode what up Hope um I think- hi Hope I love you. <laughs> Hope's done it, right? Or is doing it? I forget. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hope Hope just finished, I believe. Awesome, awesome. I mean, Hope, you can answer these questions when you come on the podcast. You just yeah. let me know, bro. Like, I'm waiting on you. I'm waiting on you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, awesome. And so the, if you don't mind me asking about the, the having your daughter and then that bringing up like triggering some traumas or, or, or showing you that you had yet to address some of these traumas. Was that because you became really cognizant or like concerned about passing on those same traumas to your daughter or was something else going on there? Like, and if this is too deep, yeah. we can cut it out. No, you know what? You can ask me pretty much anything. <laughs> I mean, I wrote this book. I've already like delved deep into it. Right. So it's all good. Yeah. I think, I think it was a bit of that. It was a bit of um, not wanting to pass that on to my daughter. And, but a lot of it had to do with the fact that I was sort of just hiding a lot of it. And um, the basis of it was an incident of sexual abuse that occurred um, that happened to me when I was 12. And it was my stepfather's um, father. And he was, very much a grandfather to me and you know moving out to um from North Van out to Langley I felt really lonely Mm -hmm. and he earned my trust and he preyed upon me and and my family didn't always they didn't deal with it in the best way possible um but that's okay you know it that's happened and I had sort of socked it away and I was ready. I knew that having a daughter uh, made me realize that, wow, I, I probably should face these things. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a, a length of time to go without facing it. But at the same time, some people go their whole lives without addressing it. So. Exactly. I mean, props to you for, well, I, I don't know if props is the right, thing but like I'm glad that you took the initiative to address that and I guess I don't know if I want to commend you but like I I sense like forgiveness and grace for the adults in your life for not knowing how to handle that you know because this is back in like the early 2000s late 90s yeah, late 90s, like 1998. Right. So then that kind of a thing was never spoken about. And it wasn't like, you know, just people didn't talk about it. You know, like people didn't, 
people weren't open now, like that kind of stuff. Now it still happens, unfortunately, but it's talked about more and there's more resources available to like mental health resources for the, the victims and for the parents of the victims and all that stuff. But that wasn't a thing in 1998. Um, I mean, I was six, so I don't really know what was going on with mental health at that point. I knew I was depressed, but you know, that's all I got. But so I, I sense that nineties were sort of a battleground for it all. Yeah. Yeah. So like I sense that forgiveness and that grace and like, there's a part of me that's like, you know, Hey, you're a very forgiving, graceful person, and that's wonderful. But also, I'm like, I mean, you don't got to cut them any slack. Like, they were, you know, there's a bit of tension there, and I can sense that tension. I'm sure it's in the book as well, but um, thank you for sharing that. Um, in your kind of coming back to writing and your sort of like re examining, you know, this trauma, and I'm sure other ones that you didn't just talk about, and you know, save some for the book, you know, don't, don't give it all away. I don't want any yeah, spoilers, right. you know? Um, but, like, in in coming back to that, was there also, like, a a change in lifestyle to kind of help with, the like, coping with the pain of revisiting these things you've hidden away? Like, did you get into, did you start hitting the gym real hard or meditating, yoga, you know, smoke weed? Not saying that you got to do that because I know some of my students listen, but I'm just saying, like, some people do do it and that's life. Or um, like spirituality or loss of spirituality. Like, was there a, a, another change besides coming back to to writing for you? I think for me, I've always had a, a bit of like a fickle relationship to all those things. You know, I've gone through phases of meditation and yoga, and and I think this for main thing for me is the search for a really good therapist. Mm. <laughs> and that has always been fraught for me because one of the other traumas in my book is um, after the incident uh, that occurred uh, of sexual abuse, I, my mom went to find me a counselor and to help me through it. And he ended up saying a lot of really inappropriate things to me and then got his, his license revoked for having, um, having inappropriate sexual relations with his young female clients, exactly my age. And so that was a, a re-trauma, definitely. So yeah, the the search for a good therapist has been a long rocky road. Yeah. And but I had to persevere. Absolutely. Um especially with that that re-trauma of the trauma coming from the person who's supposed to help you through the trauma, the first trauma, not the re-trauma. And then yeah. why would you ever trust somebody who's like I'm going to try to help you with this re-trauma and the trauma? You know, because like, nice try. I don't want to re-re trauma, you know, like, yeah. and especially at a young age where you're sort of forming your rules for how life works. You know, you, you know, you've now established rule number five, therapists, perverts or whatever it is. Right. And how can you trust someone? But also you're like, man, my mind is a mess. How do I sort this out? And then everyone's like, oh, well, you should go to a therapist. It's like, yeah, but I don't, they're all perverts. You know, it's like. I'm not saying all therapists are perverts, by the way, people. I'm just saying that if that's your re-trauma, 
you're gonna think that. Like, I gotta think about dentists from some trauma from when I was five. Still not over it. Um, yeah, dentists are pretty brutal. Yeah, all <laughs> uh, of that. Yeah, that was that. It took me a while to kind yeah. of. Um, you know, because that was disorienting, especially for a teenager, right? It was disorienting, and it it took me a while to have faith in the concept of therapy again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, absolutely. But, you know, along with writing this book, I continued to talk to a therapist because I think that's important when you're writing about past trauma to mm-hmm. stop if it gets to be too much. Yeah, that would have been talk smart. Talk to a therapist. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, what did you say? I said, yeah, that would have been smart. Um, yes. <laughs> pro tip for any writers out there. Um, don't do what I did. Uh, do what Carly did. Stop and talk to a professional. Um, but it's hard. We, we're we just starting to talk about that as writers. Yeah. Is, you know, we kind of have this still the old guard way of thinking like push through it just keep writing the writing is catharsis and that's not always true and so you have to really um think uh, about what you need while writing honor that yeah i so i'm not gonna lie um i don't know anything about the old guard or like classic poetry or anything like that like um when it comes to the literary world, I know nothing. I am like sometimes that's best, <laughs> to be me, honest. Well, it's the thing, right? Like me and my mom were like eerily similar, but we're also we couldn't be any more different, right? Like I come from this world of like hip hop, anime, and when it came to like writing and writing the book, it was like I was just approaching it like a dumb jock kind of thing. <laughs> so it wasn't so much like, you know, power through it's the catharsis. It was no no. I said I was going to write this poem today. So I'm going to write this fucking poem. You know, like if yeah. I don't, I fucking lose. And then I owe myself three poems tomorrow. Kind of like, I would just kind of set these goals and be like, if I don't reach it, I'm a loser and I don't fucking lose. So I'm writing a fucking <laughs> book. It. <laughs> it's not a good way. I'm not saying it, I'm, it's just like, I get really competitive with myself. So it's like, like this could be better. You know, or like every show, um, I any any performance I do, I will re-examine that performance, or I'll like listen to the voice recording that's been on my phone. Fun fact: the first time we met, um, my voice recorder was still going, so I can kind of hear our conversation from my pocket because I forgot to turn it off. I was like, "Oh man, this is so embarrassing!" But I will like listen to it and make oh, see, I didn't say that word right. Or like I didn't say whatever, whatever, right? Um, or like I took I too long of a pause. Like game. I do tapes. that twice yeah. anytime I'm on camera or I'll probably listen to this and just cringe my way through every word I say. <laughs> That's just me. I mean, I think you're doing great. And I listen to I listen to this podcast um at least twice before well, I mean like before it's out, usually. But um I think you're doing great. Personally, so. Thank you. Future Thank Carly. You. I'm a Virgo, so I can't help it. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, future Carly, relax. Past, right. present, Carly's doing fine. Okay? Just relax and share this episode with people. 
Okay, got to get those numbers up. Thank you. So now, that you, so you've got this um, this therapist that you trust, and you're writing, and you know you you got two kids, and you live on the like like what's a day in the life for poetic sensation Carly Bloom? <laughs> well. I just moved to the island in September, so I feel like I'm still kind of figuring out the shape of my days, but it's funny, when I moved here, I thought life would be so much more chill, and it is to a degree, but it's, I'm still like a mom of two kids, and balancing work, and writing practice, and Mm -hmm. the household, and stuff, so um, it's basically me wrestling with my attention span all day long and trying to write trying desperately to write amidst yeah you're working on you're working on some fiction as well right like you're not just a poet you're you're also a fiction writer well I actually went to SFU's writer studio program for fiction okay I I studied under Kevin Chong amazing yeah yeah yeah. my mom works for him sometimes He's so awesome. And, but so yeah, writing this book was actually a procrastination project from a novel (laughs) I was working on. (laughs) Ironic. Yeah. And, but right now I'm taking a crack at a second novel because when the pandemic hit, that first novel just felt horribly irrelevant. And I had convinced myself that I had to shelve it for a bit. I might return to it, but. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. But yeah, I'm working on a novel right now quite slowly, but also on other poems. Right, yeah. Um, I struggle with committing to a project. Same, yeah. I I, um, I have two novels on the go, and I'm working on poetry book too. So this, yeah, this they, is weird. We all do it. Yeah, yeah. Just can't stop. Like, give us a pen and we're just monsters. You know, just can't stop. Yeah, it's like, I think you posted the other d- the other day that it was just like a cup filled to the brim with ideas and yeah. then like the empty cups of time and money. And I was like, oh, there's just nothing more true than that, you know? Yeah. Oh, man, so many ideas. And I feel really bad for Ryan and our other teammate, Aiden, because I will just pitch them like, like all of my ideas and they they're the first ones to be like i mean like you could but then that's gonna delay this other thing he's like yeah you could put out that mixtape but then all that money that goes in the mixtape that takes away from poetry book too bro um hey but people pay good money for a team of you know people to keep you on track (laughs) yeah no they just um they just kind of came into my life, you know? It's like, you, you know, whenever you're not looking for the ones, that's when they, they come into your life. That's my, that's what I believe, you know? Happened with my wife and happened, happened with these two, so I'm not yeah. mad about it. Um, That's, like, almost a different, that's, like, a that's like a different podcast almost, but, yeah. Right. It, you always find who you're looking for when you stop looking for them. It's so true. It's so true. I've had so many experiences in my life like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like a best friend or yeah. something like that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. That's kind of how I met my husband too. So oh, nice, nice. Yeah, cool. <laughs> he seems cool. I mean, I've only seen pictures, never heard him speak, or never even he seen is, him move. Yeah. Just yeah, right on. He's very wonderful human. 
Is he right there and you have to say that or? Yeah. (laughs) No. No. (laughs) He paid me to say it. Oh, sweet. Sweet. (laughs) That sounds healthy. Mm -hmm. So healthy. Um, When it comes to like, okay, so poetry or fiction, who are you turning to or what are you turning to for inspiration? You know, like with my, uh, just for example, like with my novel, I keep telling people that I'm pulling inspiration from like Avatar The Last Airbender into the Spider-Verse and various anime or something like that. But also it's a novel. So it's like different. Who are you turning to or what are you turning to for like inspiration? Like, you know, I, I saw you got Giggle Puss's cover was kind of like posted on this like Taylor Swift fan page. Are you a big Taylor Swift fan? No, not not really. I mean, um, the the woman that runs the page, she had sort of picked it up, and oh, okay. I and I love I just love how creative she gets with the matching the book covers with Taylor Swift. But right. I haven't per se been a fan of taylor swift but i am a fan of her page it's very creative cool cool so like who are you actually inspired by yeah i'm inspired by so many different writers um a lot of fiction writers i love otessa moshfeg um she writes amazing fiction um a lot of poets just in my life like Hope is somebody, Hope Lauterbach, she's somebody who inspires me all the time with her work. I'm fortunate enough to get to be one of her first readers and she's so creative and another shout out to Hope. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Hope's the absolute sweetest. She really is. And just a lot of poets I've come into contact with over the years. One of my favorites is Yonina Curtin. She has a new book out, I believe, um, but it, I just, she started writing later in life, um, I believe in her 60s, and she visited a lot of past trauma in her life, and I just have so much respect for people who decide to just pick up writing later in life like I don't know if she had written earlier on but and her work is incredible it's raw it's brilliant it's heartbreaking and so she is somebody who's always inspired me uh, Junie DeSalle her work is incredible uh, Jen Sukfan Lee her latest book of poetry The Shadow List just broke my heart it's incredible as well so just there's so many incredible poets in vancouver that especially female poets i really connect with yeah i've noticed that in every poetry scene that i've been a part of most of the scene is comprised of women which you know i think is really cool but then it gets kind of weird because the usually so this has happened a couple times but i've noticed like a lot of the dudes will try to like be the alphas of this like poetry community but i'm like i don't think you understand where you are dog like all right anywhere that isn't slam is not your domain uh when it comes like the poetry universe if it's not slam that kind of like alpha i wish i was a rapper but i can't keep a beat sort of Mm. 
poet um doesn't really fit like you know um, yeah it's i think that's sort of like you said that domination mentality needs to kind of be checked at the door right like yeah we're all here to kind of you know vibe off each other's words and to be inspired with each by each other and lift each other up and i think that was so refreshing when i came across your work and i met you for the first time because i was just like wow like you weren't like that at all and so that felt really very refreshing it's so funny to me. sorry i'm not i'm not saying what you said is funny that's very sweet thank you um it's just really funny because like um that that same event where we first met i I stepped off the stage and like two people just kind of like stopped me they did that like old person thing where they put your hand on your chest or whatever maybe they just do that to guys i don't know but like they kind of stopped me and like oh so you must be like a slam master or something right and i'm like oh no i've never done a slam before in my life and they're like what do you mean and I'm like, oh, I've never done a slam before in my life. And they didn't believe me. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like. It's funny how people are so quick to kind of like adhere a label yeah. onto the work. Right? Yeah. And I think it's just because of that, like my poetry, the mo- the poetry I perform the most is very like rhyme heavy and it's very rhythmic. And so if mm-hmm. your understanding of slam is like basically black culture then i understand why you would think that but Mm -hmm. um yeah i don't have that same sort of like wwe wrestling persona um when i'm talking i'm i'm pretty upbeat pretty like hey like what's up like you know rhyme 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 all right i'm out of here kind of thing like that's a terrible impression of me you You body slam somebody up there (laughs) No, but I've seen like a lot of dudes like do this like chest pounding thing where they've got that like spoken word cadence memorized and yeah. um it's like just really trying to show how like how hard these bars are and I'm like, okay, like whatever, dude. Like Yeah, I don't know my dad either. Like you don't see me <laughs> punching myself in the sternum over it, like chill like not to be insensitive or whatever. It's just sometimes it feels kinda corny when it like corn yeah. when poetry is too performative it's like it's just a lot and it kind of takes me out of the poetry like sometimes the performance gets in the way of the actual poem and that's a fine yeah, line to walk. Away from the words yeah yeah and you're not leaving space for me to interpret what you're saying or experience it from my point of view right like um i think that's part of what makes you know, a page poet really meaningful and powerful is like, there's so much space to read it in your own voice and read it from your perspective because you're looking at the thing from your perspective. You know, like, yeah. like I'm like, when I have your book, I'll be reading about your perspective from my perspective. And that's like a human connection thing that you just can't get when someone's trying to manipulate you into feeling exactly what they want you to. Yes, I can see that. Yeah, that makes sense. Awesome. I'm glad because sometimes it's fine line, don't. Right? Hmm? I was just going to say it's a fine line. It's a fine line to let the words shine, but to also, you know, lift the words up and out through performance. But it has to be subtle, I think. And if you want the words to shine. 
Yeah, my one of my mentors says that poets are the vehicle and the obstacle for the truth. Whoa. Yeah, he's he's really wise. That is very wise. He's too wise sometimes. <laughs> but also unbearably naive. It's great. It's a fun <laughs> What a combo. Yeah, no, we're some someone calls me well, someone calls me Adam Jr. whenever like I'm part of a group call on Zoom or something like that. They're like, Adam Jr. I'm like, actually, my name is D. Oh, you can just call me D. Um, I don't look anything like Adam. I'm black. He's white, for starters. Um, but, you know, that's fine. Um, shoot, I had another question about performing. When you perform, do you go off book? Do you, like, this sounds really, like, um basic but do you memorize it or do you read it from a page when you like do shows or readings or whatever yeah I've never really memorized my poem because I get performance anxiety I just always have and so I try to just let the the words speak for themselves and I just try to make sure I don't flub up a word or anything right okay that's almost like part of that fine line though, is you know that you trying to memorize it would get in the way. So in order to be of service to the poetry, you just read it, present it. And, and, you know, you're being pretty articulate and stuff. I was just curious because, um, I try not to, like, I try to memorize everything that I perform. And so, for me, when I if I'm reading from a book, it's because I do not know it, and then people can see like my hands kind of shake when I'm like trying to flip the page or whatever. But then I see all these people reading from books so competently. I'm like, there must be a stagecraft to that style of performance, you know? I'm sure there is. I don't. I don't know how those people do it either. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Um, I did the Unbound thing with like that Hope produced. And a bunch of those, yeah, you, yeah, you, thank you. Um, they called me a liar when I was done, which I thought was really funny. Um, cause I, I was nervous, but then I like, I do like, I get really nervous. I get stage fright. Right. Um, and then I do it and then I'm fine. Um, so then it looks like that's hard to believe that that's very hard to believe that you're nervous because you did not seem nervous at all. But Hope said she was nervous too, and she did not look nervous at all. Like when I'm nervous, my hands shake, my voice is like paper thin. It's maddening. So that's off to you guys. You. My <laughs> hands shake as well. I just move around enough that no one notices. Mm. You know, that's one of the benefits of talking with your hands. But um, there was a few other poets there, like Elliot and Alicia, they were reading off their notebooks and I was like, how the fuck are you doing that? And it not being awkward. Like, that's amazing. Cause like, I can't do it. So I just, grass is always green on the other side, I guess. I guess. Do you do a lot of, like, have you, do you do a lot of performance in your poetry career? Is that a big element or is it mostly page poetry? Like I just realized I only know you as like, we met once at a thing, someone asked you to read and you said no. And then you've been <laughs> like Insta friends ever since. So I don't really, yeah. I've never caught a Carly Bloom show or anything. Does that happen? Is there other Carly Bloom shows? I haven't done readings in a while. Like 
I remember I read one poem um, after I said no. And then I was like, okay, okay. I went up and I read, but I used to do more when I was at the writer's studio. And then, you know, the pandemic happened right? and we weren't really doing readings. And I did a couple online things, but it's been a while, but I, I do miss getting up and just sharing your work and, and feeling that like anticipatory energy of people, you know, hanging on to the words. Like, there's something so special about that. So what I'm hearing you saying is that like maybe around October, November, you might be down to do a live event. Yeah, for sure. All right, Ryan, take a note of that. Um, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out uh, the whole book launch party thing. And oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, events are just starting to open up. So yeah, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I for, I, I did one and I forgot that that's a thing that people do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, know. I, I mean, mine was like super informal because, you know, I don't have like an agent manager or publisher or anything like that. So I was just like, I don't know. Let's all meet on zoom and let's talk, you know? Um, yeah, that's pretty low key. I guess you would have to like come back to the mainland for those though. Wouldn't you, or would we all have to? Yeah. yeah? yeah. No, I, I'd probably come to the mainland Sweet. and I come to the mainland quite often. My mom lives there and right. I, I have a lot of friends there. So you never know. Maybe right. you'll see me at a reading. Oh, that'd be cool. And then we can, and then you, me, Hope can go for sushi. Be cool. That sounds wonderful. Oh, good. I, I was so worried. Some people don't like sushi, and I don't understand that. I'm obsessed with sushi. I could eat it every single day, but oh, I don't want to get mercury poisoning. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a bit much. Um, I think I had it two days in a row once, and I was like, all right, that's my limit. You know, gotta move yeah. on. You know, try other. Yeah, foods. I'm great. That there's good sushi on the island here i wasn't sure oh yeah that's risky yeah but there is there's good sushi here right on um okay we're getting we're getting close to the the um, the hour mark got a few minutes left um well, that flew. yeah i know right it's it's funny because like doing podcasting it's like super quick um yeah. except for one that one dragged on, but you know. Oh, ouch! <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It was um, it was like a weird. It wasn't my podcast. I was a guest on a different podcast, um, and the format was really like planned, and so mm. it was like stop recording. Okay, now I'm gonna ask you this question. So and, kind of abrupt. Yeah. So it, but yeah. it, you know, it was like a. 15 minute podcast episode, but I think it took us like two hours to get it the way that the producer wanted it. And then I don't even know if they posted it. Yeah. Cause I guess I just wasn't, cause I wasn't ready for that. Right. Cause this is my understanding what we're doing right now. It's like, Oh yeah. What do you think about sushi? Also like what's up with trauma? Like that's how I podcast and that's all the podcasts I listen to. Um, yeah. I appreciate that though. It's like, you're hanging out with friends, right? 
Yeah, that's kind of like that's the whole premise of this podcast, right? Is like one of my favorite things to do is to just sit down with like a fellow creative or an entrepreneurial spirit, someone I find fascinating or inspiring. And I just like to talk to them and be like, what do you do? Why do you do it? Um, yeah. Pre pandemic, I would ask like absurdly deep questions to like baristas and waiters and I stuff like that. that. Um, like I'd be like, More what's one thing? Hmm? More people need to do that. I appreciate that. I mean, sometimes it it's embarrassing for the people that I went to the restaurant with, but you know, I'm just like, hey, like, what's one thing your dad did great? One thing your dad did that's not so great, and then you know, sometimes it was like, oh well, you know, um, you know, he he drove me to every baseball game. You know, he missed work a couple times to catch my baseball games, but also he drank a lot or something like that. Or like, oh, I haven't seen my dad in 13 years. It's like, okay, great, and then you know, having these kind of deep it's like human moments yeah these deep human moments and then they just kind of pass like i'm not i don't have lifelong friends all over the place because of this but it's been it was an interesting thing but then i stopped doing it around you know 2020 hit because uh we're all under so much stress and i was like you know what everything feels so like big sometimes small talk is okay in this context you know so then i can't just be like yeah, I, I know your day is probably not going great, but like, mm-hmm. I hope it gets better or something like that. Um, but that means too much to a lot of people when, like, that's not small talk at all. That's, that's I huge. think it's small talk, but oh, okay. It's meaningful talk. Yeah. I guess it's small in the sense of like, I'm not going to try to go deep. I'm not going to be like, hey, mm-hmm. what's like the thing that hurts the most? Because we don't have time for that. And it's probably something current and I don't have any answers for you. Um, I just picture a line of people waiting to get their coffee. <laughs> You're like, what is the biggest thing that has hurt you? <laughs> I mean, I would always check, you know, like if I'm, if, if there's a line, I'll just go for like, Hey, what's something awesome that's happened today? And then just leave it at that. Um, Cause that's easy. So you know how to read the room then. That's yeah. Good. Yeah. I was a stand up comedian for a few years. So I know how to read a room. Um, kind of know how to work a room and that kind of helps with the whole performance thing. Um, shoot. I was going to ask you a totally different question and then I got sidetracked by patting myself on the back with how deep I like to go with strangers. That's weird. I, I patted you on the back too, so it's okay. I mean, I appreciate it. Not enough people give me props, you know, like, uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, but that's actually partly why I think is, you know, like, You've read Joy and Misery. I think you can get the sense that, like, I was ignored a lot and I didn't mm-hmm. feel seen. And so mm-hmm. it's really important to me that I, like, see people, you know? That's it's, so relatable. Awesome. And it's, like, really important. To me. And, and then, like, you know, I'm not, like, a big podcast network or, like, this isn't sponsored by iHeartRadio or anything like that yet. But, um, you know, these are, like, I want to elevate fellow creatives and like I'm a TikTok creator as well. So some TikTok creators have been on here. I want to elevate. I want to talk, you know, it's, it's all that sort of stuff. So that's why I like doing the show. And it's been, it's been great to talk to you um, before we kind of wrap things up. Where, where can people find you on like social media and stuff like that? I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm also on Instagram. 
I'm more on Instagram than Twitter because sometimes Twitter feels like a giant room where like thousands of people are talking at the top of their lungs. And so I try not to linger there too much. Smart. Um, So mainly Instagram. I don't have a website yet. Okay. But yeah. Awesome. So we'll put that in the show notes because I know what your Instagram is because we follow each other. That's right, guys. This is an Insta friend. Subtle flex. And um and the book is called Giggle Puss. It's just like the word giggle and the word puss put together. Right? Giggle puss. Yeah. And there's a picture of McBarge on the cover. Right. And if you don't know what that is, it's a boat. Google. Yeah. The only floating McDonald's, to my knowledge, that there has ever been. Oh, see, I didn't even know that. I was, you just said McBarge. I'm like, cool, some some barge, some boat, right on. You know what? I know. And I just take for granted that everybody knows what the hell McBarge is, but no clue. It's a um, floating damn McDonald's. Awesome. So, everybody, go check that out. Now, um, this is going to be our final question for this episode of the Don't Fret podcast. Um, if I give you the opportunity to like go back in time, or to like reach down inside and get in touch with an inner child could be as young as five, could be 10, 15, whatever. So travel back in time or speaking to your inner child, however, this makes the most sense to you. What age is, are you like, what age are you talking to yourself? And what's mm-hmm. one thing you would say to them not to fret about? That's a good question. I would Definitely go back to when I was 12 years old and I just say, look, you don't have to spend your life pleasing people. That shouldn't be the priority. You just keep writing and maybe don't worry so much about dating problematic men in your twenties. <laughs> There'd be something along those lines, like just keep your head in those books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's that's good advice for all of us at any age. Yeah, like don't be afraid to be a nerd because that's going to take you to better places. Yeah. You, you know the 90s were like all about ooh, just nerd phobia and I just I it would have probably helped me if I had someone saying just stick with the books, stick with the writing. Yeah, and like that nerd that everyone in the 90s was afraid of doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't. Like, not at all. Like, sure. Like, in fact, it's like the quote unquote cool people and the bullies very much perform as nerds now. And it's kind of a mind bender. Yeah. Well, it's, it's bizarre. But like that whole like bad posture, acne, glasses, braces, all that stuff, like, not a lot of people ever had all of that at once (laughs) and you don't see them now. Yeah. You know, like, and some of the biggest, most muscular, like bro-y looking dudes, super into Pokemon. They love Lord of the Rings or something like that. Like, it's just not a thing anymore. Um, Like we're less wrapped up in being the cliches that we so dutifully curated back in the 90s and early aughts, I think. I mean, I was too young for that in the 90s. Like I was just like, I don't know, I like Ninja Turtles and I'm sad all the time. (laughs) 
but that was me. Um, uh, uh, would you like to close us out with the second poem to end the yeah. episode? That'd be amazing. Yeah, I'd love to. So this poem is about an old reality show that aired in early 2000s and it was called The Swan. And it was a pretty disturbing reality show. It was sort of the beginning of when reality shows were getting really popular. And the premise of it was a whole bunch of women, um, quote unquote, average looking women. Obviously that means like deviated from the mainstream definition of what's attractive. Anyway, and they made them over with plastic surgery and like a litany of plastic surgery and makeup and pseudo fashion. And anyway, that's what this poem's about. It's called Ugly Ducklings. Why do we always turn to the swan? Our culture's doomed silver child following closely behind Eagle trumpeting her tragic song before final goodbye, trapped in perpetual tunnel of love ride, squashed between saccharine greeting card goo, necks, curved beaks, touching, meat of arch to create heart, an image to capitalize on. Haven't we projected enough onto these creatures? Could a swan even begin to grasp all that they symbolize? The same way those women took to the stage in the dusty fog post 9-11, 16 contestants plucked from 200,000 hopefuls, all grown women openly called ugly ducklings on national television. Women caught in the crag of deep class divide backgrounds that needed bandages instead of ceramides spit and polish from the plastic surgeons who helped them. Surgeons with names like Dr. Hayworth. Their pre-makeover bodies, emblematic of their losing hand in our card game society. I had just turned 20 when I watched them on the screen, faces pixel gray, puckered with tears and kerosene-soaked stories, begging to be worthy. I watched a health coach scream at one of them in her kitchen as she made dinner face bound in a goalie mask of gauze and surgical tape. No pork chops, the party's over. Despite the fact that it's supposed to be the other white meat. I can't remember which one she was, the one whose boyfriend called her average or the one whose husband left or the one with the nose that had a slight hook at the end. I do remember that woman though, especially in the Where Are They Now episode. Dear God, where would we be without our Where Are They Now episodes? Her face wiped clean of ethnicity, who now works at a news station and models on the side. I once heard a male swan is called a cob and a female swan a pen. I think of this word in its many definitions, but can't seem to look past how it means a small place of enclosure. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. Appreciate your time. Everybody else, thank you so much for listening. 
Uh, She's been Carly Bloom. I've been D. Fretter. Y'all have a good week. Be safe. Be smooth. See you next time. Peace.